and I think that's the nature of building anything and putting anything out into the universe, right? Like sometimes you are the steward of it. Sometimes you are just the vessel and it's going to go through you and it turns into something that you could never imagine. And then sometimes it just is a season in your life and it's a season in the marketplace as, as well. And you have to kind of come to grips with that too. Hi, and welcome to the official Laughs podcast. My name is Estefania Lacayo, and along with Samantha Tams, we founded the Latin American Fashion Summit, a global platform for Latin American fashion and design. In our podcast sessions, we aim to bring you enriching and inspiring conversations with designers, entrepreneurs, leaders, activists, and newcomers, and share their powerful stories with you. Thank you for being here. We hope you enjoy the following conversation. Today, I'm incredibly excited to be joined by someone I admire so much, the exceptional Felicia Hadger. Felicia is an innovator powerhouse, a personal transformation speaker, an author entrepreneur who works shapes the way individuals show up, are valued, and financially benefit from playing full out in the innovation economy. Felicia is also the CEO of Pharrell Williams Black Ambition Opportunity Fund. Industries giants such as Google, Spotify, DoorDash, Target, Samsung, Etsy call Felicia to help them empower their teams and shape their inclusive innovation strategies and empower their teams to step into the zone of genius. Felicia has been featured on NBC, Today Show, MSNBC, The Cooking Channel, Wall Street Journal, The White House Champion and Change Honoree. Last year, a LAFS community had the privilege of hearing Felicia's powerful words at our Miami summit. Felicia, welcome to the LAFS podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been dying to do this podcast, you know, since I met you last year. You know, you were a speaker at, at the summit with your co-founder, with Cora Williams, to speak about Black ambition. And I love starting all of our podcasts, like for our community to relate to how I came to the person that we're interviewing. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was in a meeting with with Craig Robbins and, you know, and I love sharing this story. And it's like, he asked me for like a favor and I was like, wow, I can ask this man for quite a lot of things, right? <laughs> and and I had just recently read about what you and Pharrell were doing for Black Ambition. And I, it obviously being a Latina living in the U.S., I love I loved it so much. And I was like, I think I know my people. I'm, I can assure that not that a lot of them might not know about it. So I asked him, I was like, do you think Pharrell would be, <laughs> we can invite him to be a speaker. And he's like, sure. And he texted him. And I was like, anyways, I didn't think that was going to be, but it'll be possible. And then of course, I started learning about everything that you brought to the table. And obviously, the rest is history. The people that were privileged to listen to you guys at the panel at their closing summit, it was amazing. It was extremely inspirational. Um, but so thanks again for that. Um, so that's how we actually, how we came across. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a good, that was a good pair, pairing between Craig Farrell um, and me. That was a good conversation. So thank you all for facilitating that. Well, yeah, because I love, I mean, I love what you guys are doing. And I think um, our community needed to know about it. And of course, if that's the whole purpose of what we do, I mean, we need to give real opportunities to the Latin community. 
of course, other platforms out there like yours that are really creating amazing impact. Um, and we'll talk about that, about applications and all that. But let's go back to the beginning of Felicia. You know, when I was working on this interview, I started, um, I've, I've listened to a lot of your lives because you're so good at it. But I had the opportunity to go back and like listen to a lot of like, the public speaking that you do. And I love, let's go back to the beginning. Um, and I love the story. I would love for you to share the story of like, you worked at Nintendo and then how you and your husband co-founded this company of popsicles, how you fell yeah. in. I love the story. Tell us all about that. Sure. And people are always just like, from popsicles to CEO, like how, what is the dash in between all, all of that? And, you know, I started that, well, we started that business kind of like in climate, like now, right? It was the 2008 economic downturn. Everybody was losing their job left and right. And like I lost my job, my husband lost his job from the same company at the same time. And so we were running experiential marketing campaigns for Nintendo and just loved, loved, loved my job. The only thing that I would say I love better and bigger than that was desserts. Like I'm a dessert fanatic. I got married at a hippie donut shop in Portland, Oregon. If that's a, you know, it's probably the truest testament to how much I love desserts. And I was traveling a lot for, for work at the time and had stumbled upon Mexican paletas, loved them, loved how fresh the fruit was. It was just, it was a type of dessert that I had never experienced before. And then growing up in South Florida, um, no one was making them, right? And we We're talking moved about back. The, like, best, the, the spicy ones, the, the ones that have like tahini. All, all kinds, right? And just like re, like actual real fruit and popsicles was a novelty at the time, right? And um, and no one was doing it like that in, in South Florida. And so when we moved back after losing our jobs and moved back to my parents' house of all places, you know, try, try moving back to your parents' house in your early 20s, uh, especially to a Caribbean household and being like, uh, I'm also bringing my husband with me and I have no job and no way of making money. And you, you quickly start getting the side eye, like you got to figure something out really fast. And so I, I never planned to launch a food business, never, definitely didn't plan to ever launch a frozen dessert business, but I could not get a job back in my field at that time because of the economic downturn. And so I just got creative. I'm like, well, let me, it's my time to tinker and figure things out. And so we started a food brand called Feverish, which we wanted to it to always feel a little bit more lifestyle-y than it was like a food production company and quickly realized we didn't want to do like the going out into the neighborhoods and the schools and started going out at night at nightclubs in Miami and producing these pops at home. And it really started to take off in a way that we had never imagined. And so kind of leaning back on our experience in experiential marketing and putting that to get that experience together with a really kind of antiquated food vendor business. Again, and this was before gourmet food trucks, we were doing this or when we, when we launched this and this is we started what, going to 2018, 2019? No, I, no, 2008, 2009. Um, it was a long time. Yeah. The first Yeah. Time. Yeah, so and you were still um, living in your parents' house here. We were we had moved back to our, our my parents' house in Delray Beach, and so we weren't even living in Miami. We just quickly realized that in order to reach like big brands, 
um, we needed to be doing business in a, in Miami because that's that was a, a center and a market for them. And then when you're just thinking about like high traffic nightclubs and like all the fashion events that were going on and the industry events and the branding and, and conferences and things like that, it just made a lot of sense for us. And so that's where we really officially like set up shop. And like the nightlife there is where we would go out. And so we were one of, you know, probably the only ice cream and frozen dessert business that was going out at night. And our hours were like, you know, nine, 10 o'clock until two or three o'clock in the the morning. And um, it really picked up for us like Google and PayPal and Forever 21, Avena Lotion, uh, Whole Foods all became our clients. Like, let's stay right there. I mean, you say it so easily, but for someone listening to us, I mean, how did you get PayPal, Google? Like, you know what? Like, you just embarked into like a world that you had never touched, and Mm -hmm. you have clients like Google and PayPal. Oh, did you? Yeah. How do how do we do it? Right? It was it was never part of the plan. It definitely wasn't one of those snap your finger moments. It was just we were starting to make a lot of decisions that just one felt a little bit more authentic to what we were trying to build, even though we didn't necessarily know what we were building. We just had an idea of where we wanted our company to be positioned at the time, right? And so we knew we didn't want to be out in schools. We also knew that we didn't want to be like slushing popsicles one at a time in front of Vagabond nightclub or on the beach every night. But what happened when we started going out to like industry events is like the brand managers would be there, right? Partnership managers, publicists, and because they would see us at the baby fat fashion show or, um, you know, whatever like conference or event or so so we would just we would show up at night um we would park across the street we would pay for like a parking location with uh, like our cart or a little truck sometimes it was just <laughs> i hate to say it, like bribing the security guard like okay. hey we'll give you some free pops just let us stay here for the hour as soon as like the event let, let out and like, that's what we were doing, but the attendees didn't know that that's what was happening. They, a lot of them thought that the event producer paid us to be there. And so we would give away a few free pops. <laughs> yeah. We would give away a few, few free pops when people first walked out and then everything else we were charging. And so people didn't know, but because they start seeing it, us at like these high profile events, they then wanted us at their high profile event as, as well. And like, that's where a lot of that start happening. And so we weren't making money at like Buku money at the time, but it would like be enough to get us back in gas some nights back to Delray Beach, right? Or it'd be enough to handle production. You know, like the PayPal's and the Googles and... and um, Yeah, it came from from that. Um, It also came from, I want to say it was Deco Drive that featured us one night. Um, no, Thrillist, Thrillist magazine. And I don't know if you remember that, but it was like the lifestyle newsletter for, for men, right. Or something like that. Or, and like, we got those two features because we were, they caught us at a nightclub one night and like, then our phones start ringing off the hook to the point where we couldn't even handle the requests that we were, we were getting in. But it was being really kind of putting yourself in the place of where you ultimately want to 
be known for and, and positioned. And I feel like this is very known now, but this wasn't the thing back then, right? Um, that helped because it started putting us in the places of decision makers and true buyers that were also doing their own events that wanted like that cool factor or they wanted something different and, and unique. And so that really helped. And because we were doing that, then we got media attention that broadcast what we were doing to a broader audience. And then that really helped us as well. And so our business went from, you know, selling one pop at a time to a few hundred or a few thousand pops at a time for events and then a lot of branding and marketing campaigns. Like that's how that started. And then well, at that for point, us, you left the kitchen, of course, of your mom. Yeah, yeah. We um, left the kitchen, moved to a commercial kitchen space so that we could start producing and, and hire like a, a team in a small team to support us selling the products. Um, then we got featured on the Today Show and like the cooking channel. And like those things really catapulted what we were doing. And I'm trying not to collapse time. That was over the course of a few years getting getting to that point. But it, it literally started in my parents' kitchen and then exploded in a way that we had just, we had never imagined. And I, I would say that the, the one unique factor is we just never looked at it as what it was, right? As just like, we're just selling popsicles. We're like, no, we're building like a really cool and unique like event experience where popsicles just have to be the, con- or happen to be the conduit. Um, and as a result of that, a lot of companies used our product as uh, promotional tool items because people have an emotional connection to food, right? And so once you eat something, and you feel good, you're more receptive to hearing whatever marketing message happens. And so, you know, Forever 21 bought like 2,500 popsicles for, from us that were all yellow to match the color of their logo. And we put a 10% coupon on the, on the, like branded on the stick. And that was what launched their South Beach, used to launch and promote their South Beach uh, store opening. Like we did a lot of those really fun and unique campaign, but it was also what made the difference between us, you know, being at a park all day and maybe selling a hundred pops to being paid to hand out pops for free and promoting big national brands. Like we helped launch Airbnb um, through like a popsicle campaign when they first came to Miami uh, during our Basel one year. Like it was a lot of those kind of things. And then using social media to document the process and using that to leverage for like new relationships. Like we did a vitamin water popsicle eating contest, which was something that we created that helped us close that deal. But then that led to other beverage brands working with us because we, you know, we were documenting it and putting it on social media. And this was like before people or brands were using social media as like a business utility we yeah, were using it as a business utility. We just got it a little bit faster than other people. And that's probably, and then again, that was like leaning on our experience in experiential marketing and product launch because that was happening on the West Coast, but it hadn't fully made its way to the East Coast. And, and like that little, little bit of competitive advantage and then kind of putting experiences together really helped. Because I think a lot of times when people transition, from either corporate America or their past experience that maybe really want to follow their passion, they think that they have to lose all the experience and the know-how of their past life when they're kind of reinventing themselves. And when that clicked for us, that like, hey, 
like think, let's think about everything that worked when we were working in experiential marketing and when we were promoting video games for, for Nintendo and how we were able to get thousands of people and really kind of help that product sell out. Well, it, popsicles and ice cream aren't the same thing, but consumer habits are the exact same way. And we don't have a multi-million dollar budget like Nintendo, but we have the know-how and we can do things on a smaller scale that still have that impact. And like a lot of that reframing of our thinking, instead of only focusing on that we couldn't get jobs and like the market sucked and that like the recession was happening to everyone, but it really wasn't happening to everyone and that we could still find high paying premium buyers to buy a lot of our product at one time, like those kind of shifts in our mindset really helped us better position um, the small business that we had started. I think it's fascinating. You untapped, you talk a lot, a lot about this, you untapped your genius. And yeah. obviously the marketing that both of you guys were bright, were bringing to the table from your past life, I think helped so much. Where is, so what happened to the company? Like what, what like let's keep moving forward. Um, yeah. That was successful. So we, Other a team, what happened? Yeah, then? we... I mean, long story short, we took on investors. It didn't work out that well. We launched a store, planned for national expansion. Um, we ended up having to sell the company uh, around 2013, 2014, somewhere, I think around 2014. We sold the company. It wasn't a big sell at all, but uh, you know, Derek and I were able to, to get out and then really start focusing our time and energy on something that had started consuming a lot of what we were doing, which was uh, technology training and kind of going back to our actual background uh, prior to launching the, the food business. But it was a, I would love to say it was like an amazing, happy ending on the tail end of that. We had built something that we felt was really special, but we didn't make the best decisions on taking on investors. And that's probably why I'm so passionate about supporting entrepreneurs and and that right decision of scale and growth is because we went through so much on, on, on making that decision and not necessarily making the best decision. I totally remember why. I totally connected with you. Like everything you're saying, you're speaking my same language. So mm-hmm. I told you, but I, I raised a lot of, I had my own venture also in 2010. I, I raised capital, had a big falling out with my business partner then. Um, yeah. And when I decided that I wanted to create laughs, I wanted to create a platform with a purpose and and Mm -hmm. with something much bigger than just fashion. Like it couldn't just be a fashion platform. It needed to have a purpose, right? And I was like, I'm not going to raise a dime because you have an idea about what a business could be, but you have no idea what it will become. And most likely it will not be what you thought it was going to be. No, no, it never is, right? Which is... Good and, and and could potentially be bad, right? But it's, and I think that's the nature of building anything and putting anything out into the universe, right? Like sometimes you are the steward of it. Sometimes you are just the vessel and it's going to go through you and it turns into something that you could never imagine. And then sometimes it just is a season in your life and it's a season in the marketplace as as well. And you have to kind of come to grips with that too, which I think it's easy to say, right? It's a process for for sure, but sometimes it literally just is what it is. No, it needs to be a chapter and it becomes kind of like the biggest lesson in your life, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think um, only like, I talk to so many entrepreneurs that I mentor, I sit on advisory boards and I tell them like, I know it's so easy to say like, don't raise capital, but I promise you like, 
your mistakes are going to cost you less money. Oh, yeah. And you're going to hustle it more because you're going to have to just get creative on all the market oh. approach or anything because you just have no money. Yeah. And, and it's a lot of times it's a, it's a slower word road. And I, I know everyone hates the, the word slow, but oftentimes slow, you know, that pace also means like sustainability. 100%. And I, and I, you know, and I think being very clear on the type of business you want to build in the very beginning is really important. And, and a friend of mine, Rudy, um, he gave us that advice early on. He was just like, you know, um, make the decision in the very beginning. Is this a business that you want to get acquired or is this a business that you want to keep in your family for generations? And he's like, everyone romanticizes building the family like legacy business. Um, but you need to make that decision. But with either decision, operate as if you plan to sell because that's how you put start putting the right processes in place. And this was advice like 15 years ago. And I think now the opposite is everyone is romanticizing you know, the, the quick, scalable, fast sell um, and not thinking about what does long-term look like? What does building a little bit at a slower pace, but more sustainable look like? And then what do I want this business to represent 10, 15, 20, 100 years from now? Because many of us are, the, are sitting in or wearing 50 to 100-year brands. That takes a lot, but it also takes a little bit of a slower pace than what has been created in this startup environment. But by then doing so, you can be a little bit, take much more consideration about the type of capital that is required for you at this stage. So you don't get lost in something that doesn't authentically feel like what the original vision is. And I see a lot of entrepreneurs um, just kind of get caught up in all of that and lose sight of why they be, what they built and oftentimes lose their companies if they are not careful in that process as, as well or, or, or lose themselves, yeah, lose which themselves. is, I think, of anything, it's the hardest thing. Lose their position because they have such a clear or, or because the investors want a return so quickly that, you know, mm -hmm. that they get distracted from their purpose and their why. And, and then the company just completely shifts to not really what the purpose, if they would have just been more patient. But of course, I understand also the other side. If you're an investor... You don't want to lose your money. So I'm of like, of course not. I mean, I'm all for like raising capital, but when the time is right, you know, I think, you yeah. know, your model, I think. So when Felicia, this, now you're this, you're the CEO of Black Ambition, you're a top speaker, you have motivational courses. At what point did this started? Like, so you, so you guys, Sell the business was a great lesson, maybe not monetary, but it was a great lesson in life. When did this new, this Felicia, like when, like when you were at Nintendo and this tech companies, the marketing, like, were you a public speaker for companies? Like, or this just came out natural later on in life? I, I wasn't, you know, it's, it's crazy. I started public speaking and doing workshops in college because I had won $130,000 in scholarships as a C student in high school. How is that possible? Uh, <laughs> it's actually possible. Like I ended up writing a whole book on it. Um, it's just, I, I learned at 17 that there's more than one pathway to success, right? And like, if you could get really creative, like there's opportunities for you. And I couldn't apply for any of the National Honor Society or the 3.0 or 4.0, 5.0 scholarships. 
but there were all these other initiatives um, that leaned a little bit more on my talent. And at the time, I was a really good writer. And so I really, I kind of wrote my way through essays to scholarship opportunities. And so as a result of that, um, you know, when you graduate high school, you win a bunch of money, people come knocking on your door. Can you teach our, you know, youth program and DeVry University and the Urban League? And I start getting flown around to develop college prep workshops. And this was all at like 18, 19, 20 years old. And so that was my first experience in doing workshops and, and speaking and just started to become really good at it. It's probably where I got like my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. It was doing that. And so I, that Were was my first business. Any of your parents good at public speaking? Um, I mean, they, they both talk a lot. <laughs> so, uh, but not, not necessarily. But, you know, and someone had kind of made this uh, point for me. Like I, on, on my dad's side of the family, it's, there's, it's just full of pastors and preachers, right? And so... There's a, there's a legacy of that to a certain extent. I didn't grow up in the church like that, but like my grand great grandfather um, and a bunch of my uncles uh, own churches, run churches, and so I, I I would have to give it to that, right? Um, I I had to learn how to start speaking up for myself and really being able to tell a story in high school because I didn't have the grades, but I was a big sister. I had thousands of hours in volunteer work. I was captain of the basketball team. I was on the golf team. I ran track. Like I was, I was in the leadership. Like I was a very active student. I was in an engineering program and like play set, like a competition. I'm just, I'm a kinesthetic learner. Like I love an immersive experience, getting my hands dirty. Like that's how I learn. And I love to learn. I just wasn't good in the traditional school environment. And so as a result of that, on paper, I looked like I should be enrolled in dropout prevention classes, right? And go to like vocational school, which is what my guidance counselor told me my senior senior year. And for me, like that was the point where someone didn't know me, didn't know anything about me, was trying to define the trajectory of my life at 17 years old. And like, imagine if I listened to that woman, we wouldn't be talking right now. Um, that, and I think that comment defined you and pushed you so much. Oh yeah. And it, it defined me in so many ways, right? And on one end, looking back, it challenged me because I was kind of just coasting along. Like I, I was like, I know I'm going to graduate high school. I, I, that's a given. And like, there was no way I wasn't. I, my mom is Jamaican, right? Like there was no way that I was not going to graduate high school. I just wasn't going to, you know, be a stellar student and a Rhodes Scholar or anything like that. And I, I was kind of fine with that until this person told me like, you should just go to, you know, try and get a job or go to vocational school, but college isn't for you. Um, and I knew I had to go to college because my mom told me you're either going to college or the military. And if you're going to military, that's so that you can, it can pay for you to go to college. So my mom's a PhD, right? Like there was no, no not furthering your education. But it's also my mentor always says, you know, disruption follows intention. And if you don't realize that, you'll quit in the middle of your assignment. And so I had to realize that this woman who didn't know me, and I think all of us, have a story like that where someone doesn't know us or our potential is putting their limiting beliefs on you. And that's a defining moment in anyone's life where am I going to listen to this person 
and not do anything and not reach even the hem of my potential? Or am I going to use this as fuel and to a certain extent, prove this person wrong, but then also prove myself that there are new levels with my name on it. And I probably just need to try a little bit harder and set my North Star a little bit higher. And that was what I had to do at 17. I probably didn't have the vocabulary to explain it in that way, but I used her words as motivation really to prove her wrong first. And then what happened was I created some massive opportunities for, for, for myself in the form of really kind of dedicating my whole senior year to trying to get as much money as possible to go to college. I didn't get into any of the top schools that I applied for, but I got into Lynn University and I raised like $130,000 between five scholarships and two grants to, to go to Lynn and study communications, right? Like that came, that was my senior year, right? It was probably different some other senior years, but that was mine. But that process is like, I had all these things that I was doing, right? I was very active in, in my community, but that didn't translate to how I was being evaluated for, you know, going into college or getting money. And I had to figure out how to communicate that. So some of that came from that experience too. Well, you have different, different skill sets. And I always, I love talking this person, this topic, like, I have dyslexia, I have HDHD, mm-hmm. I failed every course, high school, college, I went to school in Boston. I was told the same by my counselor in Boston. She told me, are you Latin American? She's like, I'm like, yes. And she's like, but do you have an American passport? And I'm like, no. And she's like, so what are you going to do? And she, I was like, what do you mean? And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. She's like, well, what do you want to do after when you graduate? I was like, I think I want to work in fashion, I don't know, somewhere in New York. And she's like, you're never going to get a job. You know that in fashion, um, they would never sponsor your visa because you you need to, A, because of your grades and because no company is going to sponsor you because there's just no need in the fashion world because there's just so much demand. And that was it. That was the fuel that I Goodness. to to hustle, then I tell the story all the time and I called the 1-800 of Vogue at my dorms for an internship and the rest is history. But my nice. point is that it's great to share those stories because I think people are still being told and I think not everyone... Oh my God, yeah. And when, you know, and just the education, you know, needs to evolve. And I think it has evolved in a certain place. But like, for example, for me, like, you know, I, I, I would probably still flunk a test that I would have to memorize for sure because my brain just doesn't work like that. But if you give me a problem solving to put my hands dirty, I will for sure do an A plus and you would have to grade me. It's just my brain processes differently, right? Yeah. And it's, a, it's so unfortunate that there are so many people in the world that do that or feel like they have the authority to, to squash someone's dream. Like how dare you tell someone that they can't follow their dreams, especially at that age, right? And I think it's... it's a, or a counselor, like they should right. know the best <laughs> not to do same. Yeah, I would tell people, I'm like, her, her job title was guidance, right? <laughs> not, not to deter, but like actual true guidance. And I think that's why you have to be very careful about who you take advice from and what has hurt them or what has disappointed them or what they haven't been able to do in life. And that's why I was always telling people, be very mindful about who gives you guidance um, and how you take that in because they are looking at it from their limited lens a lot of time. 
and your lens is not limited. And all I can think is like, hey, you and I both had like the fortitude enough to know, like, I'm going to use this as fuel to prove them wrong. But my heart breaks for however many people experience the exact same thing. And they didn't have the tools at the time to say, I'm going to prove you wrong. They said, you know what, this person's right. And so there's all this missed opportunity that is there. But I also like commend you because like walking into your genius at your conference last year and your summit last year was just like, that is how you make up for those type of people, right? Being able to bring community together, shine a light and create opportunities for like the Latin American community in fashion to know it's absolutely possible. No matter who told you no, no matter who stood in your way, who didn't give you your contract, who did not believe in your vision and your dreams, like that was a beautiful manifestation of like taking that and turning that into something that is a game changer for for your community and for all communities at the end of the day. So I just want to thank you for that and give you your flowers because it was such a beautiful experience to, so to walk kind. into. I, um, I, I probably, yeah, and I, I agree. I mean, that's very kind of you. And I think probably those circumstances that we both had that are very similar, different paths, but different, very similar, probably lead us to places that we probably never thought. So here you are, yeah. you're a very famous person. I hate that word, but, you know, well-known public speaker and you have books and you have, so that came in when the, when you guys shut down the company that comes in later. And when does, uh, how do you come in to back to Black Ambition? Yeah. So after Feverish, well, really kind of on the tail end of Feverish, we had launched this coding program for kids and teenagers called Code Fever. So our company is called Feverish. This new initiative is called Code Fever. Uh, a friend of ours, Wilfredo, who owned Lab Miami, which was like one of the first co-working spaces in Miami, gave us the name, right? And we had started doing that and spending a lot of time doing it. It originally just started off as a way to kind of upskill our employees that were working in our shop. And so when we closed, when we sold the business and closed our store and then sold the business, it became really a passion project that turned into our life's work over the past 10 years. And so that's where going back into innovation and building community, we built a beautiful 10,000 square foot co-working and innovation space in Overtown, um, built a conference, a technology conference called Black Tech Week um, that we we sold to Lightship Capital and Foundation last year. And we started doing more of that work, creating opportunities for startup founders uh, to access capital, to get the tech talent, to upskill themselves, and then be able to create the community that we're constantly um, making sure innovation was happening in diverse communities. And our work was really centered around the African-American and Caribbean community and the low-income Hispanic community, because they were also being left out of the innovation economy that was happening in, in Miami. And it was coding boot camps and everything else that I mentioned. And so that had been the work for about seven years before um, Pharrell's chief of staff asked me to come lead Black Ambition. And when I had that conversation in that meeting, I was like, lead what? <laughs> like I, I was like, it was one of those things where it was out of left field, but I was also mentally preparing to transition out of the organization that I had founded with my husband and explored doing something else. And not to sound like all Oprah Super Sunday soul-ish, right? But 
you know, she always talks about when, when you conspire to do something with like your new intention or your intention, like the universe conspires to help you with whatever you want when you make that decision. Uh-huh. And it was just this, you know, this weird thing where I said, it's time. And I started publicly telling people that I was close to and some of our partners and funders that like I'm planning to transition at, at some point. And um, it was just interesting how that conversation came, came about. And I, it was not a consideration at the time. And I always like to be very tra- tra- um, transparent with people. It just wasn't. But when I looked at everything that I wanted to do in the next stage of my career, especially leaving my baby to go do something else, it represented all of that. And I would say the biggest part of that that we weren't able to do with the Center for Black Innovation at the time was be able to invest in entrepreneurs because everyone wants to give entrepreneurs everything else but the capital that they need. Um, And that is really kind of what the center of Black ambition is being able to create wealth pathways through entrepreneurship, but also wealth has a need for speed. And so getting capital to Black and Latinx entrepreneurs as fast as possible is a game changer within itself. And, you know, for Pharrell founding Black Ambition um, in the genius that he has in all the different tentacles that he has over the course of his career, but wanting to build the best possible support structure and amplifier and accelerator for um, for diverse entrepreneurs is the work that I have the honor of, of, of doing every single day is building out that dream that he started um, and that he lives every day just as the embodiment of him and as a human being, but also wanting to find fuel and fund entrepreneurs that we know are going to be ultimate game changers with the innovations that they're building. They're just being ignored by the, the marketplace and, and, and the venture space. And that's a problem that has to be fixed. And it's the nature of what we do within the organization. I love the organization. I think it's unbelievable the work that both of you have done. When Pharrell founded the company, did, was it always originally to help also Latinos? Or that came yeah. out? No, from the very beginning. Um, I love that about him, that he yeah. also included them into the mix because probably the, the approach that any person would have thought would be like just to help Black community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, and naturally that's what we get because of the name of the organization, right? And, you know, it's it's for Black, Latinx, and then HBCU startup founders. And so there's a concentration on college students and may, because he truly believes that they're the most fertile ground. But, you know, when you think about ambition at its core, it's it's about hustle. It's about grind. It's about perseverance. It's about dreaming big and going out and get it, getting it. It's also about being uninterrupted, right? And that path to it and through it has to be uninterrupted. And we talk about that a lot within the organization. But when you think about Black ambition and people being able to hold on to that, you know, that goes back to Rosa Parks, right? And, you know, sitting on the back of the bus, even though the fear of being beaten by whoever because of that decision that she made, because she knew it was the right decision, that's Black ambition. And you want everyone to be able to hold on to that. You think about Harriet Tubman and the thousands of people that she freed as one individual traveling from the United States to the borders of Canada and doing that repeatedly, right? Risking her life and the life of others for 
freedom in all forms of that, you would want everyone to feel that level of ambition. And it's required to be able to push through all the systemic barriers that we all face um, as people of color across the diaspora, across the world. It requires that level of ambition, right? And so the name has that level of significance because of the fight and this, these people still being, being here, right? And that's not exclusive to, you know, the Black diaspora, but that's also inclusive of the Latin and Hispanic diaspora because those stories are similar. Um, you know, the, those communities were enslaved and impoverished and resources were taken out, out, of, out of the countries and are still building and still surviving and still thriving and still dictating culture and ruling things and being leaders and creators and defining fashion and culture in ways in which uh, like we'll be studying for lifetimes, right? And so like that is what the weight of that name of that organization means. And that is also why it's so important to make sure that we're a magnet for all the resources for all the young innovators that are coming up to know that there's an organization and a place that sees them, hears them, and like is doing everything possible to fund them so nothing stands in the way of them building the companies of today and tomorrow. That's why I love everything you guys do. And I, that's why it was so important for me to have you guys last year because like at last, yes, we created this platform to give them a voice, to give them a place where they can connect with buyers, with editors, with leaders so that they can become... Mm-hmm. You know, so they can have a voice and they can learn and they can empower and they can keep dreaming very, very big with a huge ambition, right? Yeah. What happens? And I felt like, well, sometimes I feel like I'm actually setting them up for a failure because Mm -hmm. here comes Netta Porte or Saks Fifth Avenue and finds them at the pop-up of one of our summits. And and then they give them an order of $200,000. And then they call me crying because they don't have $10,000 in the bank account. Mm-hmm. But then I find out about that. Like, this is amazing because, you know, people can apply for that. So now tell us about that. Tell us about Black Ambition, how it works, because of, obviously our community is mostly Latins. How yeah. it works, how can they go about it? I know applications already started, but they can still apply. What are the requirements? Yeah. Walk me through the whole process so that we can understand Sure, sure. I'm, you know, I'm happy to do that. So uh, our applications open every year at the, the first quarter of the year. And so currently, while we're having this conversation, applications open March 1st and then they'll close March, I mean, May 8th. Uh, and then we invest in five different industry categories, verticals, right? And so tech, healthcare, uh, consumer packaged goods and services, uh, which includes fashion and design, um, healthcare, Web3, and then media and entertainment are the five verticals that the the business model needs to be centered around, right? Um, We get a few thousand applications a year. Um, It's a national open kind of open search an open kind of call for applicants. And then from registering the US, I imagine, right? The the company has to be based in the US. It it does have to be based in the US currently. Um, We just- Amount of employees? They don't have to, so they need to register. They need to be a team and that could be a co-founder, that could be an employee. Um, we've got, we've changed our qualification over the time just because we want to make sure that the, the entrepreneur has the capacity to be able to go through the program and 
be able to, to implement and then be able to be fundable or get to the next level from a revenue standpoint. And, and then they can't have raised more than a million dollars in uh, dilutive funding is the other, you know, kind of part of the eligibility. Uh, those, those are it. And then the rest of it is just about, has, does the company have a level of traction? And that could have been, you know, revenue, that could be, you know, some sales, but something that has proven the model is really what we're looking for. And then kind of the unspoken thing that we look for in the application process is, you know, the organization and the company and the fund is founded by Pharrell, right? And so for-profit companies, but like there's some sort of soul to the founder and and the ethos of the company that has a community or social impact nature to it. And that doesn't mean that it needs to, it's, we don't invest in nonprofits, right? But what I always like to tell people, if you want to have a competitive advantage, like let us know how this is going to impact your family, your community, the world is going to be different as a result of the work that you do and not just be, um, you know, um, Another a capitalist. Capitalist. Yeah. just don't, not just a capitalist, right? And we want you to make money. We need you to make money because they're investments. They're not grants, right? But that's the unique thing that we're looking for because what that shows to us is not only are you thinking much bigger about yourself and what you can build and the capacity in which you can build, but we also know that like you're going to be a contributor back into the Black Ambition community of mentors and advice to other entrepreneurs. Like We don't want selfish entrepreneurs into our community. I'm not saying anyone on your team is selfish, but those are the unspoken things that we look for along the process and how they're answering questions, how they're showing up, how they're helping other entrepreneurs. And in that way, they can also extract everything that they need from our community, our resources, our investors, and our mentors. It's just that little special thing that we look for. And then you know, once they make it to semifinals round, they go through a three-month cohort-style mentorship program. And then about 10% of those companies uh, receive direct investment from, from Black Ambition. And then office hours, meeting with investors, meeting with corporations, and um, are the next stage of, of that relationship. And, and a lot of our partners play really big roles in either mentoring, advising, or kind of... Um, making really great introductions. And so we do a learning lab with Chanel, who's one of our partners from the very beginning, where they bring all of our founders that that went into their office for headquarters for two days. And like they're all their their senior people are building strategy and um, coaching and advising like super, super hands-on. Like that's the quality of relationships that are happening with Black Ambition. Heineken, you know, does something very similar in the learning lab. And then a lot of it is making sure that they get the capital and they're ready for getting into stores. And so, you know, one of our top prize winners is getting ready to roll out into a few hundred Sephora locations. Um, Another one of our companies is getting ready to roll out, uh, well, they rolled out from cohort one into a few hundred target locations. Um, Like, so like that's the type of acceleration that begins to happen or we make sure that they are sustainable in that process of getting everything that they need through the Black Ambition Network. That's amazing. And the people that have already won, how many, this this is launched what year? How many winners have you had? How many years? Yeah, we're going into the third year. Um, and so we'll hit the 100 entrepreneur mark of like actual investments into entrepreneurs. And so we've invested in about 64 entrepreneurs into this point. And then we work with 
about 250 entrepreneurs a year through the through the cohort style mentorship program. And so we invest about 35, uh, you know, between 30 to 35 companies a year, get investments from Black Ambition. And those check sizes range from 15K to $1 million for the national prize. And then we do regional prize competitions throughout the United States throughout the year. We usually do between five to eight of those um, in different cities. And then that's an opportunity for entrepreneurs to get between 5K to about 10 to 15K. That's just a grant um, and funding to their business. It's not an investment. The national prize is an actual investment through a safe note to their business. And by the way, something that I always say, it's like sometimes it's not only about winning, just the process that Mm -hmm. you become a finalist and you can become mentored and just get access to you guys and picking your brain. That's already winning, you know? Um, Oh, yeah. So yeah, how any no, the, the, the resources and the connections pale in comparison to the the money. Our million dollar prize winner uh, for the first year, Live Just Six. He always he's always joking, but I'm like he's always just like he would easily pay um, for the experience. And uh, I was just like, you can give us the million dollars back if you want to pay. Like I'm always joking with him when he says that, but it's true, right? And Pharrell is a big uh, proponent and believer of that and often correcting people. He was just like the money pales in comparison to how quickly things can happen for you once you become a Black Ambition entrepreneur and we invest in you. Like it, things happen really, really fast. And that also is why we're looking for very specific entrepreneurs that are really ready for things to be accelerated really fast. And I think sometimes we dream of that and then we don't always prepare for like that Oprah moment, you know what I mean? And so like, and this is that's the Pharrell why, moment. So that's why you said something that, is, that you know, we have our, our something that's called Pitch to Labs, which it's a competition that we do. And we find the purpose that you said it. It's like, yes, there has to be the component of the scalable, but it has to be like, what else is the product or the pro- doing that's going to, you know, be different because yes, there's, there could be like a hundred amazing sustainable bathing suits, but like, why is this one so special? that we need to go and invest in it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And I said, I love that that's one of like the criteria because that's kind of like the silent criteria that is just, you know, it's that purpose that we're all looking as entrepreneurs. I love, so for you guys listening, please, we're, they going to blackambition.com to apply? Blackambitionprize.com. And they can apply until May. When is the... The uh, May May eighth um, is the deadline to apply, and I always tell people do not wait until the last minute um, mm-hmm. because it is you know it's a it's a it's a process right, and our application process is designed to make you stronger as an entrepreneur. So I have a question for you because I talk about this a lot with black friends of mine, and we laugh so much about this about how similarities <laughs> between our cultures <laughs> because in our, in our competition we get like eight hundred applications the last week. Yeah. Does this happen to you guys a lot? Uh-huh. Yeah, our, our site crashed last year. That's how much traffic we got to the site on the last the last day. And so I was told, do not wait until the last minute because um, you know if you're going to work on something, you want to you want to make sure it gets through. Um, and that's also something that most programs look at too. Like who waited to the last minute as opposed to the ones that got in with plenty of time to go back and refine if the opportunity presents itself. But like, 
you know, the, the, the opposite side of that is our first year million dollar prize winner. They also applied at the last 45 minutes, which if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready, you know, but give yourself the best chance so that you're not rushing and you can think very thoroughly through the market fit and how you're answering the questions for every and, and all opportunities moving forward. I agree. I have one huge Latin ambition that is to try to change this, my culture and for them to do things on time, but that's just seems too big. Wait, what, fun, what fun would that be, right? Like it's, it's in the Black community, African, uh, the Caribbean community, it's all the same, right? But I think it's, it's something that we joke about, but it's also our culture and how we do business, right? We're very relational and cyclical people. And that's actually, it's not a bad thing. No. Um, it's, it's, it's something that we can refine, of course, like what you're saying on that. But I think it's, uh, I laugh so much about it, uh, you know, that I, I don't mind it as much as long as it gets done, right? But I, I completely get what you're saying. It's interesting, yeah. As long as it's yeah. By the way, Felicia, I can talk to you forever, but you know, I know you need to go because you need to go back to life. I end every podcast with the same question, which is, what is your why? Ooh, my why is uh, I am the granddaughter of a Jamaican sugarcane farmer uh, and a grandmother who only had a second grade education, but was the smartest person that I know that sacrificed everything so that I have the luxury and um, freedom that I do to be able to innovate and build and impact people. And so my why is being the biggest return on their sacrifice. Um, and every day is the thing that I check off to make sure that I'm following in those footsteps to, to return on the sacrifice. Not the investment, not necessarily the investment, but the sacrifice, which is, is huge. That's so beautiful. Thanks so much. It's always so wonderful talking to you. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you. We hope that you have enjoyed this conversation. You can email us your suggestions on who you would like to hear in our next episode. If you like this chapter, don't forget to leave a comment or rank this podcast. We really appreciate your feedback. Also, remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Latin American Fashion Summit and on Tribu by Laughs, a new platform that will revolutionize the way in which the fashion industry connects. Thanks for tuning in onto the Laughs Podcast.